Well, we are here this morning for the last week in the study of Isaiah, and it has been a wonderful study for me, and I hope it's been for you as well. And uh, I think a great way for us as we uh, begin focusing more on Christmas and Advent, most of our most beloved um, Christmas scriptures are from Isaiah, and we talked about that last week, so we'll be moving on this week. Um, so would you, if you would, would you pray with me before we start? Father, we love to be here. We love to hear your word. We love to sit under your word. Uh, Father, we love to be with your people. We love to sing praises out of the overflow of our heart. Father, we love all of that. We thank you for this church that you've given to us this morning. I pray, Father, you'd help us to understand your word this morning. I pray you'd help us to worship uh, with our hearts and with our lips today. As we meditate on the world to come, the finished work of your Son, and the glorious hope and future that we have as your children and servants, Father. And we pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, in many ways, the book of Isaiah is kind of like a microcosm of the entire Bible. And we've kind of traced this through uh, throughout our study so far. But the book itself, if you were just to take Isaiah, it contains everything that a a human would need to know about God, sin, judgment, salvation. Everything. It's in a single book of Isaiah. And I bet most books might be able to stand alone, potentially. Uh, But Isaiah particularly um, contains the entire scope of redemptive history in the single book. And we've been tracing this through. The week two, we looked at Isaiah chapter six, which is the holiness of God, where we see the holiness that he has. Um, And then Isaiah sees himself, and he's not holy, and that's a big problem, right? (laughs) In week three, we looked about the coming judgment of God in chapters 23 and 24, and that God must deal with sin, right? He's a holy God. He must deal with sin. Then last week, we talked about and looked at the mercy of God from uh, chapter 53, where the coming one, the servant of God, the Messiah, would come to bear the sin of a group of people, and these people would be forgiven. They would be accounted righteous. They'd be forgiven for their sins. So that's where we've gone so far in our travels through Isaiah, and I've, almost, I've intentionally limited it to almost exclusively Isaiah. I've, I've very rarely looked at cross-references outside the book, because the book itself contains almost the whole scope of redemptive history. So, the, there's one question remaining that we're going to look at today. So the question is, how does it all end, right? <laughs> how does it all end? Uh, what end? Well, how does the world end? How do, how does, how do uh, we go from uh, sinful creatures to a glorified state? How does it all end? And that's the question we're going to look at today. So, Um, In the past, I've kind of used this outline of the forest and the trees. I think it's helpful once again to uh, use this pattern. We're going to start by looking at a broad overview of the book of Isaiah and then zoom in on a few chapters as we specifically look at the end of time, the end of history, what happens for believers afterwards in the coming ages. So to do this, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 1. Because the theme of the city, okay, the city of God, is a major theme throughout the whole book of Isaiah. 
And he begins in chapter 1, verse 21, if you look there, describing the current state of affairs when Isaiah is writing the book. So before I start with that, could you just help me remember where are we at in terms of history when Isaiah is writing this book? So the year that King Uzziah died, what year was that? 740, that's right, okay. So if you remember, um, the Old Testament Israelites, they had finally come to the promised land, but they wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations, right? The first king they had was Saul, okay? He was a bad king. The second king they had was David. He was a good king. The third king was Solomon, that's right, okay? After Solomon died, what happened to the nation of Israel? It was split in two, okay? So the northern kingdom went north to Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The city of Jerusalem is in Judah, okay, the southern kingdom. So I want to talk about just the city of Jerusalem for a little bit. What was the peak of the glory of the city of Jerusalem so far? When, when would you say the peak of the glory of Jerusalem was? Solomon, right? What happened, what, what did this city look like when Solomon was king? It was incredible. Yeah, exactly. The temple, the entire city, uh, during Solomon's reign, that's when the temple was built. An, an amazing structure. Gold, silver, in abundance. And in fact, so uh, glorious was the city that the nations around it came just to see what the city looked like. Do you remember the queen of Sheba? Do you remember that? She's a Gentile lady. She had heard about what was happening in Jerusalem. She came, she brought money, and it says her breath was taken away. Do you remember that? It's in 1 Kings 10. Her breath was taken away when she saw the glory of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's what um, these people in Israel, and that wasn't too much uh, prior to when Isaiah is writing, Okay. But since Isaiah has written, um, or while Isaiah is writing, this city is changing. In fact, his prophecy is that this city is going to be destroyed, right? In fact, that's a major theme of all of the prophets in the Old Testament before the year 586 B.C., right? 586 is when Babylon came and destroyed the city, took away um, the Israelites into, into exile, Okay, so I want you to look now at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, so you can see the fall of this city of Jerusalem. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, past tense, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Okay. This is the lowly state of Jerusalem when Isaiah is writing. Okay. They are a far cry from what God wanted them to be. They were full of social injustice, full of um, idolatry. They were bringing their sacrifices, but their heart wasn't in it. Their, their lips were honoring God, but their heart was far from him. Okay? A thing that every generation of believers needs to battle. 
So that's the lowly state of the city in chapter 1. Now look at chapter 2, though. Okay? From chapter 1, the depths of the city, look at chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow up to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that uh, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, okay, Zion is just another name for Jerusalem, right? Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, decide disputes for the peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Who, needs, who has need for weapons anymore, right? We're just going to, we've got all these weapons, we don't need them anymore, we're going to transform them into farming equipment. <laughs> nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay? Do you see the contrast here? From the depths of chapter 1 to the heights of chapter 2, Isaiah is talking about this city, a physical city, Zion, Jerusalem. He's saying, you are here, someday you will be here. The question is, when, okay, <laughs> when. So Isaiah is writing this book to the nation. He knows they're going to go into exile, so he's giving them a message of hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and salvation. So the question is, when? If you look, we get a clue in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, okay? This is a prophetic formula that Isaiah uses talking about in that day, in that day, in that day. He's talking about far in the future. Uh, this is one of the difficulties of Isaiah is, as I mentioned before, Isaiah is looking down the timeline of history, and sometimes he's talking about something that's right in front of him, and sometimes he's talking about something that's far beyond him. And from our perspective, it takes work to understand which he's talking about, the here or the near future or the far future. So, um, this is the city of Zion. I, I put a little table in there just so you can see. Chapter 2 is the first time when Isaiah begins talking about this future glorious state of Zion, but it's not, by f not even close to the last time when he talks about it. I put, uh, one, two, three, I, I, I'm not going to count them, but all of these chapters here, chapters 2, 4, 11, 25, these are all references to the eschatological picture of the future Zion, what it looks like. Uh, so there's a lot that Isaiah has to say about the future. So that's kind of the forest, that's kind of the big picture. I want to zoom in to the end of the book. So far in the study, we've been going through the book, and I want to jump right to the end to see how does it all end. How does Isaiah end the book? And the book itself ends at the end of history. So if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 64, please. Chapter 64. And then when you get to 64... Turn back to chapter 63. <laughs> um, chapter 63. Here's what I want you to see on your handout. Um, I've put some headings there. 
you'll see this. Chapter 65 and 66 are a literary group. Okay, you'll see this. They're one literary group. We'll read through some of it. In order to understand the last two chapters, we need to go back a little bit. And uh, so where we're going to start is actually 63, verse 15. 63, 15. And here's what I want you to understand. 63 and 64, the author, the speaker here, is a faithful remnant in the city of Jerusalem and it's, it's uh, been destroyed, okay? I think the heading I put, it's a pleading sinner in the plundered city, okay? I want you to see that. 63 and 64 is from the mouth, the speaker is a sinner who is asking God to do something, okay? And then 65 and 66, the speaker changes, and uh, we'll get to that in a second. Here's what I plan to do. I'm just going to read 63:15 all the way through 64. This is the uh, sinner praying to God, pleading with God. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where is your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. Chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known among your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You met him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Let me pause just for a second in the middle of verse 5. So do you understand all that he's asking for so far? He's asking God to come, right? Okay, God, why are you waiting? Come. Now look at verse 5. He, he turns a little bit from his focus uh, inwardly. He now turns and, and looks at himself. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. You see, do you hear his confession of sin? We have all become one like who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So what does he ask God to do? Verse 8, But now, O Lord, 
you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work in your hand, of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? We see here a pleading sinner in the plundered city. Did you see that? Okay. Here is the voice of one who's crying out. He knows he's a sinner. And in fact, he knows from Isaiah 53 that his sin has been paid for. Okay. The question is, the question he's asking is, is this it? What hap- Does God have a plan for the city? Or will he forgive us only? Or will he come and make things right with the city and with our enemies? I know that my sin has been forgiven, but what about the city? Jerusalem, Zion, the cities have become destroyed. What will you do, God? Will you come? What will you do? Okay, so that is what Isaiah has teed up for chapters 65 and 66 for the climax of the book of Isaiah, okay? The book of Isaiah is marching towards this end, chapters 65 and 66, and it is remarkable. And, and let me just tell you, the speaker changes now, and you'll see this as we read. This is God's response to the prayer that was just prayed in chapter 64, okay? Do you understand that? What we're about to read now is God responding to this plea. So I've arranged it. If you look at your outline, there's this kind of um, structure that someone has identified previously in these two chapters where the center portion of this chapter, the center portion of these two chapters is the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, So we'll get to that. But he begins, uh, point A, is the Lord's call to the Gentiles, chapter 65.1. This is how God responds. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. This is the Gentiles he's talking about. We, we talked about in Isaiah 53 that God revealed himself to some and did not reveal himself to others. In general, he has revealed himself to the Gentiles but has, but has not revealed himself to the Jews. We see that in verse 2 through 7, the judgment on idolaters. Okay, I said, here I, am, here I am to a nation who is not called by name. That's still the, still the Gentiles. Verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. They sit in tombs, they spend their night in secret places, they eat pig's flesh, and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too Holy for you. These, this is what the Jew, this is what the Jews that he is ju- will be judging says. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. 
So what will God do? Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. I want you to see verse 6 here is an answer to the prayer, the last, the last words of the prayer in verse 12. Verse 12, the man, the, the remnant, the faithful man, says, will you keep silent? Verse 6 of the next chapter says, I will not keep silent. Okay? This is God's answer to the man who is sitting in the broken city of Jerusalem, looking around him, wondering, what are you going to do, God? Are you going to save us? Are you going to save the city? God says, yes, I will not keep silent. I want you to see some of the characteristics of uh, the judgment that he's bringing on verses 3 through 5, these people, what they're doing. They are uh, not sacrificing the way that God has commanded them. Rather, he has prescribed specific ways for how they should bring their offering. Verses 3, he, the, uh, he says they're disregarding them. They're sacrificing in gardens. They're making offerings on bricks. These were not, these were not uh, prescribed methods. Verse 4, they sit in tombs. This is... Um, a form of, of necromancy. They're going to the dead. They're going to mediums to inquire of, of, of things they should not inquire. Verse 4, again, they are not um, following God's prescribed method of cleanliness. They're eating pig's flesh. Tainted meat is in their vessels. And yet, in verse 5, they dare to say, don't come near me. I am too holy for you. Remarkable. I'm not sure what definition of holy they're using, okay? but God is saying they have a completely different definition of holy than what I've commanded them. Remarkable. Their arrogance. Okay. So, God's response, he will not keep silent. Uh, keep, uh, sorry, I guess I cut off verse 7. Because they made offerings on the mountains, insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Okay, so... Um, what I need to explain at this point is that God is going to be flipping back and forth between talking to the faithful remnant and the people he will be judging. It's almost as if he's got a book and there's a page in the middle. On one side of the book is the faithful remnant. On the other side is those he, who he's judging. And you'll see as we go here, he's flipping back and forth. So he'll be talking for a little bit about faithful remnant. He'll be talking for a little bit about those he's coming to judge. And he's flipping back and forth. So he's described these people who he's coming to judge, but then in verse 8, he changes. This is the next point here. A preserved remnant. A preserved remnant. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in a cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will not do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall serve it, and my servants, oh sorry, my chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Okay, he says, he promises uh, just a taste. We'll see, he's, he's getting there, but he's given us right now just a taste of what he has in store for his servants, his offspring, his chosen ones. He's reaching back here to Isaiah 53, verse 10, where um, the servant would see his offspring. Okay? 
the same word here, offspring. And in fact, you could say he's reaching all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. These people that God will be blessing are a remnant, a, a offspring, his servants. So then he quickly flips, if you look in verse... Um, if, if you look in verse 11, he quickly flips, verses 11 and 12, judgment on those with spiritually deaf ears. Okay, he flips back. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who have set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Okay, again, continuing to, to proclaim judgment on this group who is not listening to God. All the day long he has held out his hands and they are not listening. And just, uh, uh, we're, we're, just to let you know, we're marching to verse 17. What I want to get to is verse 17. But I want you to see this contrast, okay? The whole book of Isaiah is coming to a head here at the end of the book. Uh, judgment and salvation, judgment and salvation. It's almost as if it's two lines that are coming closer and closer and closer together until this chapter. And you can see it most clearly now in verse 13. As you see the difference between the servants of God and his enemies. So I'm going to read 13 through 16. And this is your next section called The Servant's Joy. And the blank I have for you there is New Jerusalem. The servant's joy, New Jerusalem, starting in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. My servant shall sing for gladness of heart. But you shall cry for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to, uh, to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Okay. We've gotten now to verse 17. I know I've been reading a lot of scripture. I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but, um, but I just want you to see this contrast. It's as if he keeps going back and forth between these two groups, back and forth, back and forth. And he is making a point. There are two very different destinies for these two groups of people. Okay. Right now, when Isaiah is writing this book, they are side by side. Okay? The remnant is surrounded by unfaithful Israel. They're surrounded by enemies. They are side by side. In a little bit, at the end of the chapter, we'll see, at the end of the next chapter, okay, that there is a permanent separation from these two groups of people forever. But, for now, we get to verse 17 which is one of the most glorious descriptions of the new heaven, the new earth, the city of Jerusalem in the entire Bible. Um, there are uh, images here which the New Testament writers will bring forward 
and, and, and just, just a reminder, uh, the, bo- the whole Bible ends in a similar way that, that Isaiah is ending his book here. In Revelation, we get another picture, probably the best picture of the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21 and 22. But this is glorious for us, and I just want to spend quite a bit of time here looking at 17 to 25. So again, if you would look at your Bibles, I'm just going to read this whole scripture here, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Amen. Here we see the glorious future which is reserved for the servants, the chosen, the offspring of the Lord. Okay, all three words are the same. Uh, In other words, those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. This is the future that's reserved for you. Okay. Um, What, uh, let me, let me take a break here and, and ask for you to give me some input. What do you see here? that will be in the city, and what do you see here which will not be in the city? What do you see, first of all, will be in the city of Jerusalem? What do you see? Yeah, do you see that? Verse 18, joy, or sorry, verse 18, glad, rejoice, joy, Gladness, verse 19, rejoice, glad. (laughs) Okay, what else do you see in here that will be in the city? Yeah. You ever wonder what we'll be doing in heaven? Is it just some, some, are you just some disembodied, um, you know, blob of a spirit in heaven, (laughs) you know? Okay, this is clearly saying there'll be, Productive activity happening. What else do you see here? What do you see? Uh, We'll be in the city. 
What's that? Long life. Yeah, that's right. Verse 20. If you look at verse 25, there is a peace in the animal kingdom, right? Do you see that? The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. <laughs> That's not usually how it, how it works, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I guess uh, usual is, is relative, but uh, at least in all of the world that we know, uh, wolves don't graze, and they don't graze with sheep next to them. <laughs> the lion eats straw. The, dust, or the, uh, the serpent doesn't bite people anymore. Makes you wonder what mosquitoes will uh, eat. <laughs> okay, there is, um, what we see here is a reverse of the curse, right? This is a going back to uh, where the whole book, the whole Bible originally started in the Garden of Eden, okay? This is going back to uh, before the curse, the way God intended the earth to look before the curse, what do, you, what do you see here that will be absent in a city? I guess kind of the opposite of everything we've said so far. But what, what specifically do you see will not be present here? Crying, weeping, no more. What else do you see? will not be present. Yeah. Yeah, no crying. Yeah, that's right. It's, God is going, he's reversing, um, reversing the curse. There will be no shortened life. Um, yeah, they won't, you won't build a house and, and just have to... Uh, this would have been particularly meaningful for Israel, right? They knew that um, exile was on their doorstep. They were just about to be taken out of the land, and everything they had built would be either destroyed or commandeered by someone else. Yeah, this is amazing. Um, I just want you to think about... The application for why Isaiah, um, why God wrote this for the people of Israel. And the application, the meaning is the same for you and I. Okay? If you imagine, where is Israel right now? They're on the doorstep of being exiled. And they're wondering, is God ever going to save us from this um, broken world? Okay? And God is reminding them, take heart, all Everything will be restored one day in the end. And the application is the same for you and I. Okay, if you, um, okay, I know I've talked with enough of you to know that you have endured um, pain and sorrow upon sorrow. Some of these very specific things that Isaiah has mentioned here are things that you and I have gone through, right? Okay, let me just list a few. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his life. Hey, is that you? Have you, have you experienced that yourself? Verse 23, a mother laboring in vain, bearing children for calamity. 
as Robert mentioned, have you built something only to have it be um, destroyed or taken away? Okay. What God is giving Israelites here is a picture of, in the end, all of the wrongs will be righted. And, and, and more than that, if you look in verse 17, he says, The former things will not be remembered. Okay? Not even be remembered. How can, how can a mother who loses an infant after only a few days... How can a mother forget that? How could a mother forget that? He says in verse 17, the former things will not be remembered. And in fact, they'll be replaced with uh, not just an amnesia, but a joy, okay? A worshiping, a joy, gladness of heart. How is that possible, okay? Let me, let me ask you, let me, let me just ask you, why are these people in the city so happy, why are they so happy? What are your thoughts? How could we, I mean, because this is real, all right? This is real. You and I have suffered quite a bit. Um, we've suffered a lot. We will continue suffering until the day we die. How is it that when we get to heaven, whenever this is talking about, okay, whenever this is, how is it that when we get to heaven, we will be filled with um, undiminished joy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. She, uh, uh, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Okay? Let me, let me tell you a word picture. So for those of you who are married, okay, I want you to remember the day of your wedding. All right? <laughs> and very specifically, I want you to remember the few seconds when your bride, or if you are the bride, were walking down the aisle. Okay, in that moment, um, you were fixed. Your eyes were fixed on the one whom you would marry in just a few minutes. She's coming down the aisle, and you are completely oblivious to everything around you. Right, <laughs> right. You are not paying attention to any. Where? What are you doing? You're, okay, your bride's walking down. You're looking over here at William. <laughs> it's like. No, you're absolutely not. You, are, you don't even see, if you're the, husband, or the, the uh, groom, you don't even see the father just inches to her right. It's as if she is the only person in the room, okay? And in fact, if your wedding was normal, there was probably some um, wedding planning drama that led up to that day, Okay. <laughs> So how many of you, when the bride is walking down, how many of you were remembering all of the conflict and the drama that led up to that wedding moment? None of it. You are not remembering any of it, okay? In the same way, in fact, much, much, much more will be our joy when we are the bride and see our husband the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven that day. That is how we can have, a, we can be, uh, have, have had, had suffered so much, and yet when we see him face to face, as it were, with our eyes, we do not remember any of it, none of it. And that is our hope. 
that, and that is exactly what Isaiah is trying to fix their eyes on, right? This is what he's saying. Fix your eyes on heaven. Fix your eyes on the one, Jesus Christ, who will come back again. When is this? This is the second coming of Christ, very simply, okay? One day he's coming back again. You will see him face to face. It'll be like you will finally see your husband who you've been engaged to for years and years and years. So, um, this is the glory of what Zion will be like. And he continues, we don't have time. I I just want to show you one more, I just want to... show you one more piece of this. Flip to 66. Uh, we're going to skip over every, all of the notes I gave to you. Skip over 66 uh, to verse 18. Okay? Here's the question. Who is coming to Zion? <laughs> right? Who will be in Zion? Who is salvation reserved for? Is it only the Jews or is it a greater plan? Look at verse 18. This is the great march of the nations, all right? Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Okay, these are, these are uh, Jewish missionaries who are leaving to go to the nations, Where are they going? They're going to Tarshish, to Pol, to Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. These Jewish missionaries are going far. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. Who are these brothers? These are not other Israelites. These are the nations. These are Gentiles. And how are they coming? By planes, trains, and automobiles. Look at verse 20. They're coming on horses, on chariots, and litters, on mules, and on dromedaries. That was a new one for me. These are just camels. Dromedaries are camels. Where are they coming to? To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering to a clean vessel, in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Amazing. This is the great ingathering of the world, the final culmination of the Abrahamic covenant. In you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed, right? This is the final ingathering of a whole people of God. And these are all brothers, right? There's no Jew, nor Gentile, Greek, nor slave. They're brothers. They're all one, and they're coming Why are they coming? What is attracting them to Zion? Well, they're coming for the same reason that Israel is coming back. Uh, Verse 18, they shall come and see my glory. They're coming to see the king. They're coming to see their husband as well, right? So, that's the great ingathering. Now, Isaiah ends here in a remarkable way. And this is the final point I have on your outline, the conclusion. And this is what I want you to end on here. Two irreversible destinies, side by side. Two irreversible destinies. Here's the first one, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before you, says the Lord, 
so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is the fate of the servants of God. From, from day to day, never ending, worshiping God in the city of Zion. But Isaiah does not end his book there. Okay? That's the first group. Look at where Isaiah ends the entire book. Verse 24. And they, that is the righteous ones, the offspring, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Period. End of the book. Wow. That is the end of the book of Isaiah. Did you know that's the last verse in Isaiah? (laughs) It reminds us a little bit about how the book of Jonah ends, right? It's like, wow. There's no falling action after the climax, you know. There's no... A nice conclusion to the book. This is a powerful end to the book of Isaiah. There are two people, two very different permanent destinies. How long will this other group be in this um, state of suffering and terror? Okay. Well, it says, The fire shall not be quenched and the worm shall not die forever and ever and ever. Okay, this, is the, this is the testimony of Scripture. This is hell, if you will. Ever, forever. The same length of time that God's servants will be in heaven is the same length of time that his enemies will be in hell. It's the same. And it's permanent, it's fixed, uh, never ending. This should make us, um, if you are not covered... Uh, if your sin, if you are trying to bear your sins on your own, this should terrify you. Okay? If you're trying to be good enough to get to heaven, this end of the book should terrify you. Um, if, however, you have a mediator, you have a, if you have repented of your sins, if you go back to verse 64, if you acknowledge that all my righteous deeds are like filthy rags in your sight, God, okay, there is hope for you. And there is one, the servant who came, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore all your sins. And you can be called righteous, not because of your own good works, but because of his works. Okay? So, this is where Isaiah ends the book for us. He presents to you okay, heaven and hell. This is where he presents the end of his book. And his purpose... Uh, when he wrote the book 3,000 years ago or so, is the same purpose that we have for reading the book of Isaiah today. Okay? If you trust in Christ, you are to read Isaiah and be encouraged at the future hope that he has for you. Okay? If you are not in Christ, if you are rebelling against God, you are to read the future that God has for you and you are to repent and turn to God who graciously will pardon all of your sins because of his servant, Jesus Christ, the one who bore our sins for us. So, um, we will end our lesson, our five-week lesson here, as we soberly think about the um, the two people groups that that he has been speaking to, 
And as we look forward to, as I hope that you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven, that you look forward to that great day when we see him face to face and all of our sorrow will be forgotten. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we um, groan inwardly while we wait to be, reun- to be united with you one day. Um, Father, we have suffered so much, and yet uh, one day it'll be forgotten when we see you face to face. All of our sadness and sorrow will be turned to joy forever. There will be no more tears, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And we will be with you, and you will be with us. We will be your people. You will be our God. We are your servants, Father. I pray, Father, that you would remind us, that you would set our hearts on heaven, set our hearts on Christ, that you would keep us faithful, keep us humble as we tremble at your word now. I pray, Father, that if, if there is someone here in this room who does not know you, who is rebellious, that, they would, that you would open their eyes, Father, to see the sacrifice of Christ made for them, available to them, that they would repent, they would see all of their righteous deeds as filthy rags, and that they would come to you, Father, for you abundantly pardon. Father, we pray for Pastor Dan now. I pray that you would fill him with your spirit as he preaches. pray that you would guard him from distractions pray that you would guard us from distractions, open our um, eyes to hear your word, to understand your word, to see your word now, and to see Christ from your word. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.